0: Welcome back to 10 and 20, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Brad.
1: And my name is Sarah. This week, we'll be talking to a local Tennessee historian and the executive director of Tennessee History for Kids, Bill Carey, about his new book.
0: Bill's new book is called Runaways, Coffles, and Fancy Girls. It's subtitled A History of Slavery in Tennessee, And as a warning to those who may be listening with your families, we do talk about some of the more heinous aspects of slave ownership as it pertains to how they advertise for those in the newspaper. So just be aware of that if you're listening with your kids. If you're interested in learning more about this topic, we urge you to pick up a copy of Bill's book. It's available from our website, store.boft.org. And again, it's called Runaways, Coffles, and Fancy Girls. So now we're going to throw it back to our interview with Bill Carey. My name is Bill Carey. I am
2: the executive director of Tennessee History for Kids, and I'm also the author of a new book called Runaways, Coughles, and Fancy Girls, A History of Slavery in Tennessee.
0: You were and are a reporter as well.
2: A long time ago. It doesn't feel like it was that long ago, but for most of the 1990s, I was a reporter for the Tennessean, the Nashville
0: scene, the Nashville Post, and a few other places This recent book that you've written came out of a project to write an article, correct? About focusing on newspapers from Knoxville.
2: It it was just in general research. I sometimes will go down to the state library and start digging for column fodder for for the column I write for Tennessee Magazine. And when I started running across the runaway slave ads, I realized that this is something that there's just so much information out there, but but not everyone has dug, a lot of the stuff has never been dug up. Like... There's all this details in runaway slave ads and some of it doesn't make sense Some of it takes a little translating But they're amazing primary sources and people kind of overlook them. For example, I found seven written by a man named Montgomery Bell I don't think anyone's ever read any of those seven and they tell you a lot about Montgomery Bell Uh, I found three by Andrew Jackson Two of the three have been had been discovered before. I think the third one may be new. A runaway
0: slave ad written, authored yeah. by Jackson?
2: Yeah, and, and you have to understand, these are amazing primary sources because Andrew Jackson would have gotten out a sheet of paper and written this down and then had someone take it to the to the newspaper office and it would have run eight to twelve times. And if it hadn't been right the first time, he would have had it corrected. So this is this is really in some ways even better of a primary source than his diary, really. But if you read these things, there's a lot of detail in them. That tells you a lot about the South and about slavery and about the way it the way slavery was that sort of correct things that we that we don't understand today
1: What are some of the discoveries that you've made?
2: Well, for example, um, they often in a runaway slave ad will will describe the profession of the slave The the skill of the slave carpenter comes up now I dug up about 900 runaway slave ads in Tennessee that were printed from West Tennessee to East Tennessee, starting in 1791 and going through the Civil War. And I, on about 30 occasions, it lists carpenter as the skill of the slave. It also sometimes lists stonemason, bricklayer, plasterer, painter, engineer. And then sometimes it won't say anything. So you can, you can sort of fill in the blank. But when, whenever it does, whenever, let's say a slave is described as a carpenter, that means the slave was farmed out because there's no way that a slaveholder could have had that much carpentry work for one household. So that means we were farmed out. And that's the other thing I discovered as I started looking through newspaper ads. A lot of slaves were farmed out. A lot of people might not have owned any slaves, but might have leased slaves. A lot of companies might have leased slaves. And so it's much more complicated than just cotton farms and tobacco farms and corn
0: farms that had slaves. It was much more than that. So when you say farmed out, it meant say, I owned a slave who was a carpenter or a brick mason or had some specialized skill, I might take an ad out saying, I have this person who has these skills if you would like to lease him from me to do a certain project for you.
2: More likely, there. but for example, I found ads for a bagging factory in Nashville that every year, every December or so, would advertise that they were looking to hire 15 to 20 slaves and that they would work them in their factory or cotton mills would work people in their factory. When the railroads came, they hired lots of slaves. When the steamboats came, they hired lots of slaves. They were farmed out. And, and in case you're wondering how that works, uh, we assume that the slaveholder got all that money, that, that if, the, if the slave was paid $150 a year to be farmed out, then that money theoretically went to the slaveholder. I say theoretically, but there were times when slaveholders would occasionally work out a deal with their enslaved people that they owned and would say that if you do this for a few years, perhaps, you know, we'll say you'll earn your freedom. That's how some slaves did earn their freedom, but that was in a minority of the Mm -hmm. time, I think.
0: So you started leaving through these old newspapers expecting to write something that would be a little bit more lighthearted, correct? I'm not sure
2: what I was looking for, but I thought it, it all started off as, why don't I do a column on the early issues of the Knoxville Gazette from the 1790s? Yeah.
0: And from leafing through those old newspapers, you end up being shocked by how, how much or just the volume of information about runaway slaves and escaped slaves. Well,
2: I just wanted to learn more about it. But, for example, one of the things I ran across a lot is it would say there'd be a little ad that would say that there is a slave for sale. And then it would say, apply to the printer. Apply to the printer. I see that all the time. I see it in the Knoxville newspapers. I see it in the Nashville newspapers. It took me forever to figure out what that meant. End up having to buy lots of old books to figure this out. What this meant is that the newspaper was serving as the agent. And it like the, the the person who actually had the slave that they were trying to sell or farm out didn't want to reveal that. And so they would have the newspaper do it. Oh. Interesting. And, and and so and so the newspaper so one of the things that became obvious is that newspapers were very much in on slavery. One of the things that we do wrong when we teach Tennessee history is we talk about a newspaper that was against slavery It was called the emancipator and it's even part of our social studies standards. That's totally being taken out of proportion There were 400 newspapers in Tennessee and all but one uh, Existed with the help of slave advertising all but one were, were in on slavery We should probably learn that more than we should about that one newspaper which only lasted six issues and which went bankrupt but if you Google the words "newspaper Tennessee slavery," you'll find out the Emancipator will pop up at the top of the list. But it won't say anything about the other hundreds that that were totally dependent on slavery. Mm-hmm. They so, would. So you're saying they would basically act as a almost a broker. Yes, yes, and you'll find you'll find that that's what that's what it means to say apply at the printer and all the early slavery ads. Uh, the other thing the the there are four or five different kinds of slave related advertising there's the runaway slave ads which i think we all know what those are whenever the sheriff caught a runaway they had to by law run an ad in the paper that said they had and that's a totally separate category of ads and there was probably more of those than there were runaway slave ads
0: wow would that be yeah. so that the sheriff's department would run that ad meaning yeah. it was presumably funded by the people, it was tax. Yes, this
2: had, it was part of the sheriff's job, part of law enforcement's job. They didn't have any choice in the matter. Whenever they found, whenever they captured someone, or someone captured someone, they had to run an ad. They then kept the, the slave in the jail for twelve months, and after that, they they auctioned them off. Wow. And that money did go to the government, by the way. And and of course, during the twelve months they're in jail, they're they're probably working them, doing something like they do so they do prisoners today. Uh, But those are two types. There's another one that's uh, help wanted ads when you're hiring a company or a household might be hiring slaves. There's the ads that say we're looking to sell. But the other one that comes up a lot, chancery court clerk and masters constantly had slave sales at the courthouse. And when I say constantly here in Williamson County, there, there may have been four or five a year. At the Williamson County Courthouse, and these are extremely well documented with these long ads that even most of the time tell you the names and ages of the slaves that are being auctioned at wow. the Williamson County Courthouse, and uh, and yes, some of them are auctioned at the current Williamson County Courthouse because that cor- current courthouse does predate the Civil War. So there's so there's all huge amounts of information, and I ended up having to I ended up making copies of a lot. I ended up with boxes, and one box labeled "underway ads," and one one box labeled this. I think I ended up with four full boxes of papers. Fortunately, when you'd make, when you've ever been to the state library, you can save stuff to a disk now.
1: Oh, that's nice.
2: Which is this would have been impossible in the old days. You hit when you tried to save something it was twenty-five cents. I'd have gone bankrupt. So I, I just would, but I would go down there maybe and spend about eight hours and walk away with maybe. 155 ads that I, that I would would then
0: look at Spend a couple of days and then I go back and in your head at this point was this yet becoming a book idea or was this just an obsession that was building up within you
2: No I realized it was a book in about 3 days Wow because it, and I've done this is my this isn't my first book I hadn't done a large book for adults in a long time. I did one that came out a long time ago called fortunes, fiddles and fried chicken, which is a book about Nashville business history. And that, that did very well. And I remember the reason I mentioned that is I think the man, one of the people who's profiled in that book is Sam Fleming. I think this building is yes. named for him. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember Mr. Fleming very well when I interviewed him, but, but so I had done books before and, and then I did one about Vanderbilt university history and I did one about, uh, Jack Massey, an autobiography of Jack Massey, but it had been a long time. I've kind of been working just on booklets for social studies classes for the
0: last 15 years. So So as you were doing your research, I noticed that the title of the book is in three parts, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure a lot of thought went into what the title was going to be. Walk us through those three different parts and why you chose that to be the title of the book.
2: Well, first of all, it's not easy to put a title on a history book. The first book I wrote was called Fortunes, Fiddles, and Fried Chicken: A Nashville Business History. The second book I wrote was called Chancellors, Commodores, and Coeds: A History of Vanderbilt University. I'm sensing a theme. I've always yes. liked that because if you if you just call a book a history of slavery in Tennessee, no one's going to buy it. And you want it. To, you want to. I remember there was a book that came out many years ago that people really liked called Secrets of the Hopewell Box: A Book About Nashville History. Mm-hmm. That book did really well. Don't you want to know what the secrets <laughs> of the Hopewell? You know, it's a good title. And and so I kind of so when I thought about this book, I, I struggle with it, but it is about runaways. Let me explain what coffles and fancy girls are. Coffles is a chain gang of slaves that is being herded from one place to another. It was a regular sight in the South. Uh, whenever slaves were being moved from one place to the other, they were coffled. They were chained together. You might see them walking down the street. Mostly the men chained up, maybe some of the women and the children just kind of walking along holding their hands. This was a regular site because there was a huge slave, forced slave migration from Virginia and Maryland to Tennessee and then from Tennessee to Louisiana and Mississippi in those states. And you read, uh, free, if you look in first-person accounts of Northerners who visited the South, you'll see the descriptions of these coffles. But Southerners didn't think they were interesting. Southerners didn't think they were news. So you don't read much about them in somebody's Civil War diary, you know, from the South. Uh, a fancy girl is a euphem is in, in its time is a euphemism for a female slave that is sort of bred for sex uh, a concubine and there were I was surprised to find ads in the Nashville newspapers for fancy girls being sold in the Nashville downtown Nashville as young as 13 years old. Wow,
0: that's shocking. Yeah, yeah.
2: so and, and, and in case you're wondering where at the corner of fourth and Cedar, which is now known as the Corner 4th and Martin Luther King. It's exactly halfway between the courthouse and the state capitol. And right across the street from the St. Mary's Catholic Church, which which
0: was there then and it's there now. Was that term fancy girls, was it something that, Regularly, people knew, or <laughs> did you have to be in the know to understand what that was referring to I back don't,
2: then? I think it was fairly well known at the time. It was certainly talked. The, the phrase was certainly used in New Orleans and places like that, which is the main fancy girl market at that time, because people would buy fancy girls and they would work on uh, steamboats as as prostitutes, and you would get the money. This wasn't. This was not in the movie mm-hmm. Gone with the Wind. And one of the first things you got to do <laughs> yeah, when you do a yeah. book about slavery is you got to realize. Almost everything in Gauntlethwin is wrong, okay, and and so, but people still think it's true, people will still argue, and, they, and they'll come up to me and they'll say, you know, you're wrong about slavery, nine, nine times out of, nine people out of ten were against it, okay, well fine, then, then I guess they weren't bankers, because bankers were in favor of it, they weren't newspapers, they weren't law enforcement officials, they weren't slaveholders, they weren't people who leased slaves. So who are these 90% who were against it? Churches were in favor of slavery. Churches, there were churches in Virginia that owned slaves. There were churches in Virginia that owned slaves and farmed them out as a form of, of income, as, a, as, a, as an investment. So it's not the, but, but there's been a whole wave of, of historical fiction that will paint a picture of, of, that's
0: not true, that's, that's otherwise the case. We hear those statistics often where people will say, you know, only only two or three percent of people actually own slaves in the country. And while that may not, the percentage itself may not be really far off, you have to ask yourself, well, who would be the vast majority who do? You would have to be a wealthier white Southern man in general. And the more useful statistic is to say how many families own slaves.
2: Yeah, I think it's one in four white households own slaves, but... You know, one of the things that I spoke at the Williamson County Public Library, I get one of the questions I get banking. What does banking have to do with slaves? Banks were in up to their neck in slavery for two reasons. One is at all these auctions, it will tell you what the terms are. No one paid cash for slaves. Uh, did you pay cash for your car? Not outright. No. Did you pay cash for your car?
1: I did, but I bought a used car. So, well, apparently there's always somebody in the room.
2: But but most people, a lot of people today, especially of a certain generation, don't pay cash for their car. They either lease or they buy it, and the bank owns it for a few years while you're making the payments. When you bought slaves, you didn't pay cash, okay? And and so banks were loaning you the money. So when banks loan you the money, then who actually owns? owns it. It's the bank. Okay. And that's why they're being auctioned off a few years later because people might get behind or the price of cotton may go down and they have to auction it off and it's the bank that would have to do that. The other thing is that when people borrowed money to buy land, they used slaves as escrow. If you think about it, what are the assets of someone who owned a household in, this, in Tennessee? What assets could you have besides land, house, and slaves? There are no cars and people don't own a lot of stock ownership in those days, or maybe they did, but Let's say that you've got your eye on the next 400... Let's say you're a farmer, you own 400 acres, and you've got your eye on the next 400 acres. And you go in the bank and you say you're thinking about buying it. And they say, well, you need some escrow. Okay, well, let's say you're going to use slaves. Which slaves would you use? Let's say you own 50 slaves. You would use the younger ones. Because the younger ones are worth a lot more money than the older ones. The banks much prefer the... They also, the banks don't want older slaves on their balance sheets because what if they die? but if and so people would would use would would use a 6-year-old slave or a 2-year-old slave or a 10-year-old slave as escrow and that's why when you look at the the sales that happened at the courthouses they had a tendency most of the time to be children because that's that's those are the slaves that were used for escrow because you might have a child who on paper is worth $1600 where an old man might be worth $100 where you're not going to be able to borrow much money on the $100 so so I'm explaining all this to give you an idea. Banks were totally in on this. Banks banks would have viewed emancipating slaves with the same enthusiasm as today they would view a massive real estate collapse. You know, yeah. they would go bankrupt. And so so there's a lot more than just farmers who are involved here.
0: And insurance agencies as well, correct? Yeah,
2: insurance, um, especially people who leased out their slaves to other jobs. There was a category called marine Insurance, which is which, you'll see ads in the paper for it. If you farmed out your slave to be a fireman or a porter on a steamboat, a lot of people did, uh, if he didn't come back because he got blown overboard or something, you, you had insurance on him. I've never quite been able to determine whether your insurance covered covered what happens if he runs away. I have a feeling that it didn't cover it. And then a couple other strange things I didn't expect. Clothing retailers had an entire category of slave clothing that they marketed which I was, you know, slave blankets, slave shoes, slave clothing. I, 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 you know, I'm not really sure what this is, but I'm sure reenactors could better explain what they, what maybe we're talking about here.
0: So that people could buy almost as like a souvenir. Is that what you're no, saying? No,
2: no, no, no. If you own like, um, there was a man who happens to, as a matter of fact, William Driver, the famous Nashvilleian who invent, who, who was the first person to call his flag, Old Glory. Mm-hmm. I found as, as I was going through here, I'd find ads for William Driver's store. William Driver ran a store, and even William Driver would have certain categories. He'd have clothing over here, and then over here he'd mention slave clothing. It's for it's if you own your slaves, you have to buy clothing for them. One other thing I'll mention: when the railroads came, this is a bit surprised to me. I never really thought of this, but you know, when the Memphis and Charleston Railroad came, it's a big deal because it connected Memphis to Charleston. It was in the 1850s, and even my friends who are who are historian types in Memphis, will tell you about what this meant because Memphis could now get its cotton to Charleston without having to go through Na- through uh, New Orleans. Well, guess what else was being tr- de- taken on the Memphis and Charleston Railroad? The second it, the second that the railroad opened, Nathan Bedford Forrest began advertising in the Charleston newspaper because he was buying slaves to be sold at his lot, theoretically, to New Orleans and Texas and other places. So the second the railroads came, the railroads were used to transport a lot of slaves. People forget about that side of the railroads, you know, but they helped They helped in this migration. People
0: no longer had to march the slaves from Richmond, Virginia to Knoxville. They could just put them on the train. I was flipping through your book earlier and a large portion of it is dedicated to, I would assume, just some of the most interesting and shocking accounts of slaves who escaped and then a brief description in the newspaper about why. And you read and it would say, so-and-so escaped, presumably to go back home. Or to go back to where they were from. As if, it just seems so obvious. Like, of course they want to go back to where they're familiar. Or I read one earlier that said, we don't know why he escaped. Well,
2: that was one of the first things that that I was curious about is the Knoxville ads would always say, he's making for Maryland. Or, I was like, why would you go to Maryland? You always think, he's heading for the Ohio River. A lot of times they'll say, no, he's not headed for the Ohio River. Sometimes a slave appears to be heading in the exact opposite direction of that like a slave who escaped from Clarksville may be on his way to To Knoxville. Why are you going there? Well, what do you think? You know, so so like little clues which tell you something about where the slave came from Um, but then yeah, there's uh, I even I, I finally decided that I wasn't going to sift through these and only mention some of them. So there's actually an appendix in the book that, it it contains every runaway slave ad that I found. Unfortunately, the appendix, be it, ended up 57 pages, but it's, but you know, it's got. I mean, here's one for, you know, National Banner, Nashville, Whig, March 1831. The Slave's name was Bob. Slaveholder's name was Robert Newell. And the, and I just mentioned some of the. Items has a wife at mr. William Ramsey's I think the said boy is lurking about the neighborhood of Nashville or upon Mill Creek Well, why do you think he's doing that, you know? Oh, and by the way the word lurking I've never seen the word lurking used so much in my whole life slaves apparently lurk According to the vernacular of the time They're always lurking Uh, and they're all uh, they're also cunning cunning and lurking Uh, There's art artful artful comes up a lot seems
0: like when i was flipping through it's either Mm -hmm. words like cunning or lurking or it's they speak with a slow speech Mm -hmm. they they sound like they yeah they they don't have a formal speech pattern all those kind of things so it's either insulting or it's uh, they're conniving yeah yeah it's
1: kind of insulting in of itself
2: yeah you have to you have to kind of get used to the right off the bat everything that that we're trained to Every alarm bell that goes off in our heads about political correctness goes away because um, because you're, you're just going to see otherwise. But And then sometimes there's families of five that try to escape together. Uh, one that really got my attention right off the bat was when I noticed that there was a runaway slave ad for a married couple who ran away. And it turns out they were owned by the government of Nashville, Tennessee, the government of Nashville owned slaves. And this is not brand new information. This has been in books before, but... But I think most people don't know this. Like Mayor Bill Purcell told me he did not know this. And Scott Potter, who's head of the Water Department in Nashville, he did not know this. Even though they were with the Water Department.
0: It's a shocking thought that even if even if you were opposed to slavery, even if you didn't own slaves, if you were a tax paying citizen, your taxes went to do things like take ads out in the newspaper. Yeah. It went to uh, fund your government purchasing New and slaves. making sure they can maintain their enslaved population. Well
2: one thing that became very clear to me is I when I finished the book if you were opposed to slavery you were either very quiet or you were one gutsy person but you out you because for example to write anything opposed to slavery and publish it was punishable by jail time you, that was illegal you couldn't write anything couldn't write an op-ed piece against slavery in the newspaper in Tennessee in Nashville or any other Tennessee City that was illegal before 1830 but it was totally illegal after 1830. so just speaking out against slavery was against the law so we, claim just the otherwise now we we'll, there's walking tours in downtown Nashville where they'll talk to you about this was a well-known stop on the Underground Railroad they're lying there were no well-known stops on the Underground Railroad and you know they are just we make stuff up now because we want people to think otherwise but but uh you know I I didn't I didn't find I mean I did find for example there was a man from Cincinnati Ohio and I think maybe by reading Uncle Tom's Cabin he got excited and he came down to Nashville and he tried to help some slaves escape and he got thrown in jail, uh, where he died of cholera the next year.
1: Wow! So he was in jail at least a year.
2: Yeah, so he was in jail. Oh, he got sentenced yeah. to two years, and he oh, died. Wow. And he's now buried in an unmarked grave under Charlotte, under the corner of Charlotte and Fifteenth. But that's that's what happened if you were against slavery in, in Nashville. Or if you tried to help slave escape, you went to jail and died, or or went to jail at least. There's a description of slave coffles that i ran into there was a man named william seward who ended up being the secretary of state under president lincoln and when he was visiting the south he was in as a young man or whatever in the 1840s he was in virginia and he checked into an inn and he looked up and he saw dust coming down the road which i guess was a frequent sight when none of the roads were paved and he couldn't figure out what it was and he kept looking and then he saw a slave coffle come heading down the road and uh the slave coffle according to his memoirs consisted entirely of naked boys between the ages of 6 and 12 who were being herded by a a man holding a whip and a gun and carrying a gun and they were they were in chains and they were heading down the road and he saw them turn and go into a a barn and then they all kind of dropped down on the floor and they got a drink of water or whatever but that and he and he figured out just sort of by logic that they were being uh they had been bought somewhere and they were being moved to the new orleans market where they would be sold and so that picture kind of stuck with me. I read that account first in a book about slavery, and then I ended up digging up his memoirs, which weren't hard to dig up. Now this guy was not crazy. This was William Seward. The state of Alaska is known as Seward's Folly. This so man became fairly prominent in the world. And that was and when you read that, you're like, "Wow, so it's pretty horrible. Some I will say this: as I was working on this book, it got difficult emotionally at times. I was so ready for it to come out, and that's part of why I was so anxious to get it out. I didn't want the, this book to wait a year, and mm-hmm. and you know because people, when I was telling them about some of the stuff I was digging, I think they thought I was crazy. And I told them that you know that Nashville's government owned slaves. Oh no, it didn't. Well, yes, it did. I was just glad to get it out, and I'm glad now that it's getting a little notice for the months of April, May, and June. It was getting no press and no attention of any kind, and it was scaring the daylights out of me. I began to think that it was just something people didn't want to hear about. So,
1: Well, it may be something you don't want to hear about, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't. Yeah. And are there any things that you found that were surprisingly good in this research, or were they all just shockingly, I Well, guess, the like- thing to
2: remember is that this book is not historic mm-hmm. fiction, and it's not... I don't have any accounts of diaries or anything. It's basically facts straight out of the newspaper. And when I say facts, I need to mention something. of what's in the newspaper that I pull out is an advertisement it's not an article there's only two or three articles that I even discuss in the book so I've already had a couple people say well you know that's fake news they were newspapers okay no it's not these are ads purchased by slaveholders this isn't fake news and so people are you know they're like well i never believe newspapers okay well fine i'm not asking you to believe a newspaper but if but if there's an ad in the in the newspaper for a used car dealership do you think that that's used car dealership would would fill it full of mistakes no but i do think there are things that we could do now that would, would help for example there's a place called nyota tennessee which has a train station that's falling it happens to have a train station from the 1850s it's falling apart well it's not hard to prove but Niota was one of the last places in east tennessee where slaves were sold i don't think anyone in that county even knows that that's a that should be a reason for them to save that train station you know but but i'm trying to get the word to them and they won't answer the phone and there are other things that i've dug up um uh, about slaves that were sold here there and so this this could be something that that you know tennessee could do more to talk about you know we have a courthouse there's only four courthouses in tennessee where slaves were sold because they're only that
0: predate the Civil War that I could prove and you know we could point that out at those courthouses so you might have just answered this but my my last question really is what do you hope the result of all this research is
2: I think maybe those of us who write books about slave, about Tennessee history need to do a better job of working it in and that starts with me and I mean I've already done a better job with the new <laughs> books we've come out with but it's wrong to not talk about slavery until we talk about the causes of the Civil War. That's wrong. Because because slavery was a big part of Tennessee in the 1810s and 1820s, for better or for worse. It's wrong not to mention that slavery was part of of, of the industry that Tennessee had. Tennessee did Tennessee did have more industry than people realize. But some of it was the wages were driven down by slave by literally
0: by slave labor. But I just hope people become more aware of it. Well, I think, do you have any other questions? No, there?
1: I don't have any more questions.
0: So once again, the name of the book is uh,
2: Runaways, Coffles and Fancy Girls. It can be purchased, well, it can be purchased in your gift shop. Uh, but it's it's at many of the bookstores in Nashville. It's, uh, it's also, there's a website called www.clearbrookpress.com. We can get signed copies that are, I think, 20% off. So, yeah.
0: Okay. Awesome. Well, great. Thank you yeah, so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to our interview with Bill Carey. We do have a big event coming up this weekend.
1: Yes. November 8th through the 10th, we're having our annual Blue and Gray Days. It's a living history event. You can come see reenactors and living historians portraying life in the 1800s.
0: Who are you going to get this year?
1: We will, of course, know Civil War soldiers from both sides. General Grant, President Lincoln. You can come play some cricket. 1800 yard games. There's plenty of stuff to do.
0: When is it open for regular public?
1: Yes, it's open for the public after 1230 on Thursday and on Friday. The mornings are reserved for school kids and then all day Saturday.
0: So that's November 8th and 9th in the afternoon and then all day November 10th. Great day to bring your family to come visit. As always, if you want to support this podcast, the best thing you could do is buy one of our T-shirts. They're available at store.boft.org. And if you want to keep up to date with what we do, we just started a new Instagram account just for the 10 and 20 podcast. If you just search for 10 and 20 podcast, so T-E-N-N-I-N-2-0 podcast, uh, we'll be posting some pictures from this and all other podcasts that we do. And then you can also follow Carter House and Cardington on Facebook. Come out for a tour. You might have Sarah or I as your tour guide. I guess I should say you might have Sarah or me as your <laughs> tour guide.
1: Yeah, like us on iTunes too. The more you like, the more people can find this podcast.
0: Yeah, like and subscribe. And if you could leave us a, a review, that would be great. So thank you so much.